from the New Testament. It's Colossians chapter 2. It's page 983 if you're using that blue Bible. 983. Colossae was a city that was kind of a clearinghouse of whatever newfangled philosophy came blowing down the alleyway. And so it would collect it and then while it was there percolating, it would pop out as something different maybe on the other side. And so it was just kind of one of those places And Paul is going to be stressing in chapter 2, don't get swallowed up in every newfangled philosophy that blows through your town there. You'll hear his remedy in Colossians 2. So Colossians 2, 1 through 10. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him, and he is the head of all rule and authority. And now let's turn to Ecclesiastes as we begin a new series, a new sermon series on Ecclesiastes, from abated to abiding. Yes, I spent two hours coming up with that title. (laughs) From abated to abiding. I'm just going to read right now verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. That's on page 553. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the first chapter, but we will read, we'll end up reading all of chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we go through the sermon. So do, please, I beg you, have your Bibles open so you can follow along with your Bible apps. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Havel Havalim, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil? At which he toils, at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So what I've read to you from Colossians and Ecclesiastes is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord God, in whose hands we live and move and have our being, give us clear heads and uncluttered hearts as we take this bold adventure into Ecclesiastes. Help us to apply our hearts to real wisdom, 
For we know and believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, in whom is all wisdom and true knowledge. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide. You can see when I'll be reading all the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. It was kind of funny, CJ and I were talking just a minute ago about Ecclesiastes, and she was, said something about, I'm really looking forward to that. Does that sound bad? You know, talking about Ecclesiastes. And I love Ecclesiastes. I have been fascinated with this book for years. In fact, one year, what I did is I actually read through it over and over again. I mean, just read my way through it, and then read it again, and then read it again, and then read it again. I did it like 16 times in one year. And that may mean I'm just very mentally uh, handicapped. I don't know. But, but I love this book. And I think that you will likely come to appreciate the sobering message uh, and, and point of Ecclesiastes as the Spirit of God who inspired the very words of Ecclesiastes takes us from abated to abiding. So today we start our trek at the trailhead. We're going to use a trail language. We're going to use a hiking uh, or trekking uh, imagery here. And every trail has a trailhead. So we're going to start our trek at the trailhead. And as we begin to gear up for our hike, yes, I do, by the way, have a hiking stick here. I will bring it out here in just a minute as an example. But as we begin to gear up, I think that something Peter Drucker once wrote fits nicely into the overarching theme of Ecclesiastes. The article he wrote was printed in the Harvard Business Review in 2005. It's called Managing Oneself. There are copies out on a cadenza. I thought that highly of this article and gave copies to both my boys, to Wes, to uh, our office manager and her husband and several others. I highly recommend it. Um, But here's what he says towards the end of that article. And I think you had this in your sermon notes. There is one prerequisite for managing the second half of your life. You must begin long before you enter it. What a great statement. Solomon is writing to his sons. Maybe he is writing specifically and pointedly to Rehoboam. And if so, then truly vanity of vanities. Those of you who know the story of Rehoboam. But even if it is not Solomon. It is a dad wanting to help his adult children to manage the second half of life by, the begin, by beginning long before they enter it. But my friends, there is also a lot here for those of us who have already entered the second half of life as well. It is a full book. And so let us begin our trek. I've got my hiking stick here. We're going to start our trek. And it's in verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to unpack those verses because they're more of an introductory synopsis of the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. Many of the inanities, the inanities of the book are all here. All of the circularity, senselessness, brevity, and banality that cycles through all 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes are right here in these first 11 verses. And all of this is lived under the sun. I'll come back to that phrase in a minute, but it is significant. So you have to ask the question, what in the world is Solomon doing here? Well, let me begin with what he is not doing. And then I'll move to what he is doing. 
So what is Solomon not doing? First off, he is not caving in to Plato's idea of history that all of time runs in this unending loop. And that each of us follows that loop of birth, life, death, and reincarnation. And this moment in history will come up again and again and again again, because the loop is stuck. It just keeps going round and round. He's not falling into that. He's not slipping into the Hindu notion of karma where the endless circularity of one's life is payback for a previous life. And he is not moving into the Lion King's circle of life. Yes, I'm going to quote Lion King here. You may remember the moment when Mufasa, Big Daddy Lion Mufasa, says to Simba, and I'm going to try to do a lion voice, so hang in here. Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. As king, you need to understand that balance and respect all the creatures from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. And then Simba replies, But Dad, don't we eat the antelope? And Mufasa responds, Yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass, and so we are all connected in the great circle of life. The Lion King showed up at Heritage Presbyterian Church. There you go. And he's not falling into that circle of life of the Lion King. So what is he doing? Well, he is stripping away all of our fantasies, all of our fictions, all of our falderal, that we as individuals, that we as families, that we as tribes, that we as communities, that we as societies lyingly tell ourselves. His goal is to strip us bare so that we become naked to our metaphorical bones where we will finally shiver in the cold, shiver in our own embrace and cry out through chattered teeth, Well, then, what's the purpose of life? And once we've shivered a bit, and we've started to turn blue, he steps in with a camp blanket, because we're on a hiking trail, got to have a camp blanket. He steps in with a camp blanket, and he covers our shoulders, letting us warm up a bit around the campfire so we don't get frostbite. And then after we've recovered a smidgen, he takes the blanket away until we go and get all blue and shivery again. He does this several times throughout Ecclesiastes. That's what's going on in Ecclesiastes. He's intentionally doing this so that we stop and we go, well, what's the purpose of life then for crying out loud? And he goes, so glad you asked. And that's where he's going to keep coming back around to He will do this all the way through Ecclesiastes until he ends at the high point, the last two verses of the last chapter. And so these first 11 verses immediately throw us into the frigid wilderness with a jolt. The three items that we need to take note of before we pack out on this trail full-blown. First off, notice the search for meaning in life And the search for meaning and value is full on, and the search is under the sun. He says it twice in these first 11 verses, under the sun. And it will show up everywhere in Ecclesiastes. That phrase is intended to describe us, 
looking for meaning and value in life with God far removed, as far away as we can get him, so that we live life just in the moment in the sense of we don't have anything else outside of this but just us and by our own might and steam and strength. That's life under the sun. It's where most people live, hour by hour, job ticket by job ticket, A life under the sun with nary a thought of the one who gave the sun. Next, the search for meaning and value is challenged by a repeated phrase. It doesn't come up here, but it will come up immediately as soon as I start reading ahead here. It comes up with a repeated phrase. And if you've got your own Bible, I'm going to challenge you. I put it in the letter this last week. I'm going to challenge you to look for these phrases because they're significant. I have seen... I perceived, I saw, and many synonymous statements like that pepper these 12 chapters. That language is is observation language. It's empiricism language, empirical language. This is in my experience kind of language. What I have seen under the sun in a world that could be, that people think is mechanistic and hugely naturalistic. This is what I've seen happen. That's the language. And so, most of the dark, depressing recognitions that the preacher will catalog in this book are events that you can see all around you all the time in a world that lives its life under the sun. I hope this is making sense. Finally, this search for meaning and value is speckled with sensible and sage remarks. They are bright spotlights. And they're often introduced by this phrase. Better is. It is better. Better than. And so forth. So that just when you are about to throw in the towel after all of the distressing, depressing observations... The preacher then throws you a lifeguard ring to hold you up. Well, as dismal as all that is, here's a better way. That's what he's doing there. And so, my friends, having prepared for the trek, our trek now begins, and it's verses 12 through 18. So let me begin here. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart, that's Reflection language. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. That's a sister phrase to under the sun. To all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen, there's the observation language, everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity, all is vacuous, all is as substantive as vapor. That's what he's saying there, vanity. And a striving after wind, trying to grasp the wind in your hands. What is crooked, what he's saying is what he sees going on under the sun. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I apply my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived, observation language, that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
Notice in those verses that the preacher is looking for meaning and value in the place that he goes is education. Looking for meaning and value in life in the place he starts with is education. That's his language. Verse 13, applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. All that is done under heaven have acquired, verse 16, have acquired great wisdom. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Looking there then in education for meaning and value, he dives into the deep lessons of life under the sun. He delves into the distinctions and data and dissertations. But in all of the scholastic flurry and bustle, there surface these thoughts that we often want to ignore and suppress. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and chasing after the wind. He keeps coming back around to that in reference to education. It's not that education is not good. It's seeking it for your meaning and value. And notice especially verse 18. The more you know, the more you come to really know how little knowledge and education done under the sun can make a lasting change personally, socially, or globally. I'm so glad verse 18 is there. I always tell people when you're going to work on your doctorate, whatever, you need to remember, when you get done with your PhD, you will live with that PhD the rest of your life. You will never let it go. You will always see it, right? You'll always think about it. It's always there in your head. I wrote my thesis on Gnosticism. I can't get it out of my head. I see it everywhere. Oh, anyway, sorry. But I see it everywhere, right? And then you just want people to, you just want to grab sometimes people and say, don't you understand this is Gnosticism and it will destroy you. And you just want to keep it up and your soul is vexed. It's very similar to when writing the book, Our Heads on Straight. I thought, you know, I'm sitting there, I wrote the book and I got it published, I was getting it published and I want to scream at the whole world, you need to read my book. The more you know, the more you get vexed because you realize it's not changing anything. I mean, if you don't believe that, think of it this way. For all of the technological, medical, and social advancements we've made, and we've made huge leaps of those, and yet the human heart and the heart of societies remain just as crooked and unchanged as they have ever been. We're just highly advanced at being crooked. I mean, if you don't believe me, Osama bin Laden comes from a billionaire family, had a PhD, I think it was from Oxford. Wow, how'd that go for him? Or think, I'm going to date myself, the Enron scandal, those of you who were alive then. Kenneth Lay had a PhD. Jeffrey Skilling had an MBA. How, how did their education work for them? Just made them craftier. The human heart hasn't changed. So for all of our technological and educational advancements, we're still the same people. We're just advanced barbarians. That's all we are. Wow, you get the point of what he's saying here. So my friends, the trek has begun and is already tricky. But watch your step because the trek is also going to get slippery. And this is the first 11 verses of chapter 2. Follow along with me. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also 
was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. <laughs> That's the funniest statement ever in Ecclesiastes. Very earthy. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from it. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Notice that the author is looking still for the meaning and value of life. And he looks inside the closet of pleasure. And the pleasure could be chemical stimulants. He mentions wine in verse 3. Chemical stimulants. The pleasure he was looking for meaning and value in was also included aesthetic tonics. He made beautiful gardens to please his eyes and forests and and fountains and all these things. He even had some beautiful people. The eyes are the delight of the children of man who were around him. He looked for consumer satisfaction for the meaning and value of life. In verses 6 to 8, I bought and bought and bought and bought and bought and accumulated, accumulated, accumulated. In verse 9, empire building. Building bigger than everybody else before. But at the end of the day, he comes to sing with Kansas. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. He joined his voice to Paul Simon. Slip sliding away. You know, the, more, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. That's where he ended up. But not only is the trail a bit slippery, notice that the trek is going to be getting darker, and it's verse 12 through 23. So follow along with me again. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool, so I hated life. 
Because what is done under the sun is grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? If you think about Rehoboam, you know why the angst was in his heart. Yet, he will be master of all of which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Just in a nutshell, the preacher now begins to look into his career. To find meaning and value in life. And what does he find? Well, to put it simply, for all of the fresh mission statements and newfangled value-adding testimonies, why it's still the same old hack and grind. That's verse 12 at least. But he goes on, everything we accomplish under the sun, everything we accomplish under the sun is eventually left to someone else. Who will likely undo everything we poured our sweat and our grease into? That's verses 18 through 23, at least a major part of its theme. You know, when I was in the Air Force and uh, I was doing a job I loved, I was working on fighter jets and H-6 helicopters. I mean, I loved working with my hands. I had retrained into this job. I'd been in there for about two and a half years, but I wasn't being treated as I thought I deserved as a staff sergeant. And so this correctional facility opens up for me. And I thought, oh, finally, I can go be someone. I can go be what I'm supposed to be, what I'm entitled to be treated as a sergeant instead of like an airman. You know how those airmen are. Anyway, sorry. So I go to the correctional facility. I get in there. I'm working there. I finally realize, you know, these regulations are old and antiquated. And so I pull them all together and I go to my boss, who happens to be the base commander. And I said, Colonel. All these regs are old and antiquated. What do you think about me revising all these regs? I need to rewrite a few others. Well, that's fine, Sergeant Philbert. It'd be great. In fact, I think they'd be perfect. It'll be, it'll make a great impact for years to come in this correctional facility. Oh, thank you, sir. And off I went and I spent months rewriting all these regulations and I got to put my name on the bottom of all of them. It was great. It was my moment. And then I ended up changing stations a few months later and ended up somewhere else and come to find out that the guy who replaced me at the correctional facility took all the regs, went back to the base commander and said, Sir, these regs are antiquated and outdated and they really don't functional. I need to rewrite these regs. Is that okay with you, sir? Oh, I think Sergeant so-and-so, that'd be great. Go for it. Thank you, sir. And he goes back and he wiped out, wiped out all of my name stuff and all the things that I'd done and redid everything and nobody even knew that I was ever there. That's what Solomon's talking about. How many people, after they have left the job where you worked, do you still remember? Six months, six weeks, six months, a year after they've left. Almost nobody remembers anybody after they're gone. Right? That's what Solomon is talking about. 
So this theme is going to return to haunt us throughout Ecclesiastes, that you can't control what's going to happen with whatever you've done after you're gone or after you've let it go. So just let it go, but you can't control what the outcome will be. Somebody else will take over, and they may not do anything you wanted them to do. There it is. The vanity of vanities. And this will return and haunt us throughout Ecclesiastes. And then right into the mix, when you thought you were really getting depressed, then all of a sudden Solomon comes in and he brings in the darkness of night, or more accurately, the darkness of death, verses 14 through 16. Death. 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 Death shoves an impenetrable stainless steel wall into our career goals, into our retirement plans, into our family dreams. And death shoves this stainless steel shaft into all of our living under the sun. Now, as I worked through Ecclesiastes, I started over the years, started marking in the margins of my Bible every place where death Death and what happens under the sun after death shows up. So not talking about eternity, talking about what happens to everything I worked on and then I die. What happens after that? I started chronicling and tabbing where all those were at in Ecclesiastes. And it quickly becomes obvious to me that here is a man, the one who wrote Ecclesiastes, here is a man with his foot up on the freshly dug soil up here And the other foot is hovering over the yawning hole of his grave. And he is looking back over his life and he is describing his aha moment to his son. It's very much like Johnny Cash. I loved a lot of Johnny Cash's songs, but some of the stuff he he did toward the end of his life were the most touching. Like Hurt. That's the song, especially the video, the way he does the video. He steals the song. He doesn't steal it. He actually gets permission to do this. He takes it from an indie rock band, Nine Inch Nails, and he reworks it to his story. And there he is in the video with his arthritic hands. And you know he's hurting as he's sitting there at the piano trying to pluck the piano. And the whole song is this flashing set of videos and pictures of his successes through life. And he basically says throughout the song, I've ruined it all. You can have everything. Take it all. Now, Johnny Cash was a Christian and he had more to the story, but that song was deeply and is still deeply touching. That's the kind of thing the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing here. And so, starting here in chapter 2, he will remind us that he is looking at his life under the sun from the lip of the grave. He, will, he brings it up here in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, skip 10. 11 and 12. My friends, that's not a bad thing to do. Just stop for a moment and imagine yourself being at the cusp of death and looking back at your life and saying, was it really worth it? Now, it's a problem if you become obsessed with it. If you do, I have a counselor here in in the assembly I'll refer you to and get you to talk to him, right? But it's not a problem. It's actually a good thing to do. And that's what he's doing. So, dear friends, two chapters, just two chapters. And the stripping has already begun, and we're already beginning to shiver, and we're already beginning to shake, and we're already beginning to turn blue at the lip. 
And now suddenly Solomon steps in and he grabs us before we plunge into the existential angst and he wraps us with that trail blanket I showed you a minute ago. He wraps us in this trail blanket around our shoulders and it's verses 24 through 26. Now before I read 24 through 26, let me just say this. It's easy to preach. It's not always easy to be. I struggle with verses 24 through 26 on a personal level. So when we get through this, just know I ain't a preaching at you. I may pull my finger at you, but I know there's three more pointing that back at me. You know what I mean? So here's 24 through 26. There is nothing better. There it is, the better than language. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases him. This is also his vanity of striving after the wind. What the sinner is going through that he just talked about, that's vanity of striving after the wind. Derek Kidner in his commentary in Ecclesiastes says this, that Solomon disillusions us to bring us to reality. Solomon's blanket that he has just put around our shoulder is not quite the live your best life now. It's not quite the you have infinite potential. Okay, that's a Geico commercial, and it's Pinocchio, and it's my favorite Geico commercial ever. You have unlimited potential. <laughs> I love that commercial. This is not the you have unlimited potential message. It's a simple message. Enjoy the moments that God has given you. Enjoy the taste buds. Enjoy the work, and so forth. And remember and never forget that the ability to enjoy these things is the gift of God himself. And so one who is truly wise comes to see in the words of the Apostle Paul that we read before the confession of sin in chapter 1 Timothy 6 verse 17. For the rich of this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Enjoyment, being able to enjoy the simple, normal, ordinary pleasures of life is the gift of God, and that's what he's referring to here. And so one who is wise is not surprised by the misery and mortality of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. But the one who is truly, genuinely wise comes to see the worth of enjoying the moment. And we can come to be joyfully wise in the face of the perplexing pointlessness of life. Specifically, what Paul referred to in Colossians has to do with Jesus. Not being sidetracked by all the philosophies of life and so forth. No. Go to Christ who is in him is the fullness of wisdom and all knowledge. And so that's why Paul then says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. There's where we begin. Knowing Jesus, being drawn to him. Let me put it to you in a different way. And you will probably hear St. Augustine from his confessions through this whole series. My favorite passage in Augustine's Confessions is in Book 10, paragraph 22, where Augustine is praying. He says, there is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love you for your own sake, whose joy, whose joy you yourself are. This is the happy life, to rejoice to you, of you, for you. This is true joy, and there is no other. That's where Solomon is driving us in Ecclesiastes. And Paul spoils it all, if you will, by writing Colossians chapter 2. Here it is. Coming to have this joy that is the gift of God to enjoy the moments that you're in. In this vain life with all of its dust in the wind and slip sliding away. And recognizing the ability to enjoy is the gift of God himself. So you start with Christ. That, my friends, is the first part of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are so grateful that you love us so much that sometimes you like to take us on trips, hiking trips, and strip us bare so that we begin to realize our lack of self-sufficiency, our limits and limitations, so that we finally look up to you. We pray that you would help us to enjoy what you have given us, and then, Lord, to recognize that you gave us the ability to enjoy. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the times we have looked for meaning and value in life in all these things, all these things that are good, Education and pleasure and careers, all those things are wonderful, but forgive us for finding, looking for, and grappling for meaning and value in those things because we die. The great corrective, if you will. And so, Lord, help us to lift up our hearts and look to you always and ever in Jesus' name. Amen.